This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right, you guys, welcome to episode 146. I just literally made that number up. That's not, the, that's not at all what episode I'm on. I'm it on sounds one, right. <laughs> 243. No, this is episode 126. Of the Smoosh Room, the podcast that deep dives in the well-known, and more importantly, not so well-known hookups of your favorite reality TV stars. It is me, Troy McGeady, and uh, I told you guys that I have been wanting to do just like light, fun things for the past few weeks because of Beyonce like aging me rapidly for a year. Um, and today I'm doing a fictional couple, and I haven't done a fictional couple in a while, and I'm really excited to do this. And I decided. If I am going to do a fictional couple, I'm going to bring back like one of my all-time favorite fictional couple guests. So, Vanessa Cordero is here from The Bottom Bible. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you for having me. Are you kidding? I like I actually just recently went back and re-listened to our my so-called life episode and was like, I mean, it was poet it was poetry. <laughs> <laughs> I have to admit, I recently went back and watched your dick cream highlight on your Instagram Oh my story. god. And I probably watch that. If you ever see the numbers going up, it's always me. <laughs> I watch it at least once every couple months because I think about it. I laugh so hard. <laughs> and I, it's, it's a beautiful, I think it's, it's three stories. It's a beautiful three-part series. Uh, I highly recommend if anybody out there hasn't seen it, you you must. It is truly a highlight. Thank you very much. And that <laughs> dick cream still sits in my medicine cabinet and I go, I literally reach for it constantly to put it on my face. And then I'm like, oh yeah, this is ball cream. I can't use this on my skin. I guess you could, but it's just like, it's insane. Get ready for that luxurious powdery finish. <laughs> that powdery, dusty, like mummy finish. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so we are, as I said, doing a fictional couple today and I haven't done a fictional couple, uh, from a film yet. And I figured this could be territory that I could break with you. Uh, we're going to be talking about Alabama and Clarence Worley today from the film True Romance. Oh. And I can't, first of all, I'm giving glory to you because this was your idea. Um, I don't even know what to say. I'm so excited. I'll never be able in words to describe what this couple means to me. But like, this is going to be, I'm, I'm excited for this. Oh, I love these two. And I had just recently rewatched the movie. And that's why it was fresh in my mind when I was making some, some pair, some couple suggestions. And I, when I typed that one out, I just kind of thought like, oh God, I hope he doesn't think this is like, what? Like just two out of left field. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No, nothing is too out of left field for this podcast at this point. Um, so what is your, what's your true romance story? Like, how did you discover this movie? Like, when was the first time you watched it? What did it mean to you? Okay, so I am um, an elder. And I saw this when it came out, like, the theatrical release. It was in 1993. Oh, I think I was about 
17 or so when it came out. I would have been about 17, maybe 16, 17. Um, and I, of course, loved it. It, you know, I, <laughs> I kind of like, you know, looked past all the violence and danger and yeah. zeroed in completely on like, that's true love. Yeah. Like they are ride or die for each other. It was instant. It's the way it's supposed to happen. All the movies and TV that I've watched and the young adult fictional novels I've written, I've read have all led me to believe that that that's it. It's like yeah. a like thunderbolt right to the heart that you meet the person, you know, it's the, like that they're the one. And as soon as you kind of declare your love, like that's it, whatever they're about, you help them through it. You're there. If <laughs> you got to run from the mob, you're going to run from the mob with them, you know, holding hands the entire way. Yeah. Um, and I loved Alabama because super feminine, but you know, like still strong, tough yeah. as nails, like takes no, takes no shit, fought back for herself and, you know, defended herself, uh, defends her man. He wouldn't have made it out without her. Yeah. Oh, uh, God. I just love it. She's, she's, she's really, she's goals. <laughs> Looked I, glamorous as in every situation, as glam as she could. Uh, even when, you know, as we'll get to, she gets the shit kicked out of her. Yeah. Still pulls it together, still manages to, you know, stay on track. Like it doesn't throw her off. She just, okay, dust yourself off. <laughs> Pick yourself up from the, the corpse ridden floor and just keep, keep going. You know, you got have a job to do. You have a, a goal to get to so that you and your man can make it through to the other side. Yeah. Literally use any tool you possibly can. Yeah. Whether it's a bottle opener or soap. Hairspray, I mean, hairspray. I mean, like, truly, yep. like, yeah, she's a literal Renaissance woman. Like, <laughs> it's unreal. Um, I, so the first time I saw this movie, I was obviously too young to be watching it. Um, and I've told this story on this podcast before that, like, once I, when I was really young, and once I had started to kind of dabble in like inappropriate movies <laughs> that I shouldn't be like horror movies and things I shouldn't be watching. Like the dam had broke and it was really hard for me to go back. So my parents just kind of allowed me to watch whatever I wanted at a certain point, no. not whatever I wanted, but like I, I was, there was just like, there was no turning back after you watch basic instinct. You know what I mean? It's like, well, <laughs> it's like, there's not really anything we can hide at this point. What, right. What are you protecting him from? At this yeah. Point? And I wasn't, like, weird about it or, like, squeamish or immature about it. Like, I really just liked watching. I just loved movies. Um, and this was one of those movies that I remember watching as a kid and just being, like, like, my eyes were emoji hearts the whole time. Like, I was just, like, <laughs> this is it has all the things I love about Pretty Woman, but also violent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I'm obsessed. Totally. Uh, so I, I used to watch this, like, it was really important that we owned this movie. Like this was one of those movies like it had to be in physical copy in our house and you would watch it like once a year and it was a big deal. And like, you know, it's just one of those movies like it really, it means so much to my childhood, which is a really sick thing to say, but it does. It means so much to me growing <laughs> up. And it's had such a major impact on who I am. Um, I want to be a third in their relationship. Like, I just, like, want to tag yes. along with them, basically. Yes. I basically, I think I want to just be uh, Michael Rappaport in this. I just, like, want to be 
along for the ride. Oh my God. He's, he's one of my favorite parts of the movie. So underrated. So underrated. When, um, my boyfriend is a huge Tarantino fan, but had mm. never seen this movie because he didn't realize it had been written by Tarantino. Right. And I asked him, I was like, have you seen True Romance? And he's like, no. He's like, yeah, kind of, I've heard of it. And I said, well, it was written by Quentin Tarantino. I said, it was like one of the first screenplays he wrote. And like, I think it may have been the first thing he sold. I said, it was, it was, it's a big deal. Yeah. And I said, and it's also kind of connected in that Tarantino universe. Um, right. It's like, there's like characters that are related to, uh, characters in his own movies and he was like well I mean I'll I'll trust your judgment like yeah yeah let's you know let's 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 watch it and he ended up just buying it on site because he said if you like it and it's like it's something like 90 something rotten tomato like percent rotten tomatoes yeah which isn't everything but you know it means something. It is a, it's an indicator kind of yeah. and he's like well between that and you vouching for this movie I'm just gonna buy it sight unseen so he just bought it so we could watch it whenever we wanted and he watched it and I think he liked it. I don't know if he loved it, but he liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, had, when we were watching it, as soon as he saw Michael Rappaport, like his, he just got like a giant smile on his face. And, and I was like, I know, <laughs> yeah. I know. I was like, just wait, everybody is in this movie. Just wait. Yeah. Like everybody you've ever loved, everybody you've ever like not known that should be in a film together. You're like, oh. Huh. Young okay. Gandolfini, like young James Gandolfini, um, Stoner Brad. Brad Pitt. Yeah, baby <gasps> Stoner Brad Pitt. <laughs> Bring back some cleaning product. Um, <laughs> no, one of the things that I love about this movie, uh, kind of ironic, like piggybacking off of what you just said, this movie takes all of the cliches of like a romantic film, like a classic, like love uh-huh. story, and it flips all of it on its head. So like at the yes. beginning, you think it's going to be this like retelling a pretty woman and it's completely not what you expect it's going to be. And I can't tell you how many times, especially with specifically like straight men that I've had to convince to watch this movie. And I'm like, no, mm-hmm. don't get it. Like this is not fucking Beauty and the Beast. The no. game no. will make you think that, but this is not what you think it is and the look on their face when the violence starts to ensue like when it becomes a movie that they were not expecting it truly brings joy to my life like watching uh watching that experience happen because i think that yeah oh anybody who thinks that this is going to be like tarant like a tarantino light type of movie yeah uh then just watch the scene with patricia arquette and james gandolfini yeah which to this day I think is still one of the most shockingly violent scenes between like a man and a woman I've ever seen on film. It is, oh, I mean, jaws will drop. You you cannot believe how raw it is because it's not, I mean, I've seen other violent scenes, but this one is so personal. Like they are going at each other. Yeah. And it's nonstop and like neither one of them is giving up and it's so violent and it's so like emotional and it's so just crazy. Like you feel like you're watching it in the room. Like you want to reach out and help her. Yeah. Um, And I had heard that um, it's Tom Sizemore was originally cast as that part, uh, as James Gandolfini's part. I can see that. 
he didn't want to do that scene in particular. He said, I don't think I can do this role if I have to do that scene. And he was a friend of Gandolfini and said, I think I have a friend who's an actor who I think can pull it off better than I can. And that's how James Gandolfini got cast in the role. Because you know, Tom Sizemore turned it down. The crazy thing about that scene is that it's so, it's so like beautifully acted, like by mm-hmm. both of them. It's so incredibly, like James Gandolfini is so menacing and he has the actual audacity to like, also be weirdly like funny while he's doing it and like that's fucked up because you're like well he's like charming her while he beats the shit out of her and then you realize halfway through that like she's also like being playful with him while he beats the shit out of her like she's like being coy and like kind of you know what I mean giggles and laughs in parts yeah like she laughs in his face while he's beating her up. It is literally one of the craziest scenes, I think, ever. Like, Yeah, and I think if people know who Tom Sizemore is and know the types of roles he's done and the kind of personal life he's had in real life, yeah, when someone like that says, yeah, I think this is a little too dark for me. I don't think I can do this. Imagine. Like, <laughs> let, let your imagination run wild. Heidi Fleiss was woken up from her oh. sleep when that happened, like, across the country. She's like, what? <laughs> When I forgot he, like, that they were together. Right? Oh yes, the whole cast of celeb- or, uh, celebrity rehab was like, wait a minute, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah. And the thing that I also love about this movie is that from the minute, basically from the minute it comes on, like Patricia Arquette and Christian Slater have quite possibly some of the best on-screen chemistry, like in mm-hmm. film history, and really like that's the thing that makes this movie iconic and what people I think have such an emotional it's the reason people have this emotional connection to it like the writing is obviously amazing the cinematography is incredible it's gorgeous the music is obviously fucking spellbinding but like the chemistry between these two is what makes the movie it's the whole movie relies on these two having this like flash in the pan like crazy whirlwind love and it is so real yeah and I think it's almost like at any age you're watching it I watched it as like a 16 year old who had not experienced that so to me it was like oh my god is that what it's going to be like like I want that that's what I want and then watching it throughout the years like you know 20s 30s 40s is like oh my god that is really what it's like when you meet like you know you you might (laughs) you might mistaken mistake you know a bad relationship for that in in the beginning but as you start to date and like you have relationships and you have those moments where you just click with someone and it's perfect even if it doesn't last forever in that moment that yeah. it's working it's like oh this is exactly what it's like i would you know i would take someone out with a toilet bowl with a toilet lid <laughs> for this guy or for this girl you know it, it, yes right. i would i would run across the country and risk, you know, life and limb for this person. Yeah, I mean, like, even, you know, within the first 30 minutes when she says, like, I feel really say- silly saying this to you right now, but Clarence, I think I love you. It's like, yeah. it doesn't even feel, like, it feels right. In any other movie, I'd be like, this is insane. What is this ridiculousness? But it feels appropriate that she tells him on the first night that they meet each other that she loves him because their chemistry is so intense. You don't want it to end. You're like, it, yeah, it, you it's have like- to 
casting magic also because I read that Quentin Tarantino, do you, have you heard this? Like who he pictured when he was writing the screenplay? It was Drew, right? Drew Barrymore? That was Tom, uh, or that was, what's his name? Tony Scott wanted Drew Barrymore. Okay. <laughs> Tarantino pictured, please hold on to your oh, wig. God, Jesus Christ. Joan Cusack. Pardon? Joan Cusack. <laughs> oh, I like picturing that. Yeah, Holy Joan shit. Scoliosis Brace drinking from a water fountain. Oh my God. In pretty and pink Cusack, yes. Oh my god. I'm also picturing like shameless agoraphobic. Um mm-hmm. <laughs> holy shit. That's who he pictured. I mean, I guess like we have to remember that this probably would have been late 80s, early yeah. 90s, but still. Yeah. Joan. That's crazy. I mean, and that's one of the most interesting things about movies like this. Like these relic movies that mean so much, especially like a you know, a movie that like Tarantino is involved in, mm-hmm. all of the possible castings. Yeah. You know, it's so weird to picture. I mean, even Drew, like, I think Drew physically would have worked. Like, you could see her in that way, but it's almost like she's too soft. And Patricia Arquette is able to do soft and gritty. Yep. In a really unique way that I don't think a lot of actresses could do. It's like I don't, I don't. It's like glam grit, gritty glam. I don't know, but but she can do it in a realistic way that I couldn't even picture another actress doing it. Like trying to, I was trying to think of like, if you could cast anybody, like even from now, like who would you cast? And you'd almost still have to go, like you'd have to just make them older and still cast Patricia Arquette. No, you'd have to. Like it is literally, this is her, she is Alabama Whirly. Mm-hmm. It's like- She is. She sees, it's almost like she is, you see her as a character who is, bubbly and water off a duck's back and sees the world with like you know rainbows and gumdrops mm-hmm. because her life is so dark you yes know, and like that reads in everything she does like she chooses to be that person because her life is so dark and sad and like both of those things are still there all, like always and it's just like that's fucking acting like I'm sorry but the kind of manic, she's a manic pixie dream girl, but the kind of manic pixie dream girl that Drew Barrymore brings to like a 90s movie is not yeah. really. That's genius. I think you're, I think that's, that's amazing right now. I'm like, my mind is blown. <laughs> um, actually, speaking of, I wrote down this really, uh, I re- found this interesting article from The Independent. I think it was like on the anniversary of the movie uh-huh. um, a few years ago. And they said, any doubts that Tony Scott had, any doubts Tony Scott had about Patricia Arquette evaporated when he saw the effect that she had on Christian Slater, who was visibly uh, bestowed. He said, the leads would become romantically involved and their chemistry gives the on-screen relationship that palpable fizzle. Uh, Christian said it was love at first sight, but working with Patricia was really tricky because I was in a relationship. We both made attempts to be professional, but at that age, it was difficult. And it's like, that adds such another layer to it because it's like, their chemistry was so <laughs> intense on screen that they couldn't help but fuck each other. I love it. Oh, like the uh, telephone booth scene. I'm. Are you kidding me? Like, I I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to believe that there wasn't like a little penetration. <laughs> I know, honestly. I know. I was like, they're actually having sex right now. Yeah. There's a, a phone book is covering penetration. <laughs> Like, this is unreal. Like, every moment with them, when they're alone, feels like some intimate moment that you shouldn't even be privy to. Yes. A real couple 
like one of those moments where you like you're third wheeling and you have to like turn and like look away and pretend you don't see a couple having like a really intense moment just look down at your phone like a black screen it's like oh look that's <laughs> yeah. my life just a black <laughs> empty screen <laughs> like i can't hear four feet away from me i can't hear it <laughs> um but yeah i'm like you know to kind of add to what i said earlier like really this entire movie is really about like flipping expectations every moment that you think will follow the beats of a cliche love story throughout the whole movie um flips unexpectedly especially like there's like a scene where you know clarence goes to get alabama stuff from drexel and he kills him and when he comes back like all bloody and bruised like you're expecting she like hangs her head and she looks really like upset that he went to go do it and you expect because this is a love story that she's gonna like spout off some cliche bullshit about how he shouldn't have gone and she tells him that it's the most romantic thing that anybody's ever done right and they are that's when you see them you know that they were in love or at least in lust but now you realize like oh these two are like on the exact same page yeah they're like with each other like he just did something that you thought she was going to get upset about and not only is she not upset but she was like Oh my God, babe. Yeah. Basically. Yeah, like it was so, <laughs> so cool. Sweet. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Like he like just went and murdered someone. And she's like, ah, a gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> if he had like thrown his cape down over a puddle so she could walk over it. <laughs> yeah. Kind of basically, yeah. She's like, chivalry isn't dead. You killed my, my pimp. Ah. Oh God. You. Speaking of her pimp. Can we talk? Gary Oldman. In, I mean, one of, it, it's like on one side, it's one of the greatest, and on the other, it's one of the most problematic. Easily. But castings and the way he chose to play the role, he's playing a pimp named Drexel. Gary Oldman is a, an Englishman. And I think at this point, probably reaching middle age so like a, a nearly middle-aged british man <laughs> who decided to play drexel in a very urban way yeah like he plays him okay. as like a delusional it's funny because he plays drexel as this like delusional white guy who thinks he's black and everybody around him like knows he isn't but, like, he's the only one not in on the joke. And they all just, like, indulge him. It's Emperor's New Clothes, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yes. It's, it's I, I, I guess it's because he's, he's the most, he's the one in charge that everybody just kind of looks the other way with it and just like, all right, I guess, just humor him. Yeah. Um, and his hair is in, like, kind of short dreadlocks. And I read in a couple of different articles that, he had, he had already made the movie Bram Stoker's Dracula. And he wore one of the Dracula eyes in Drexel's bad eye, because Drexel has like one eye that's normal and one eye that looks like it might be, like it might've gotten damaged to the point like, where he's blind in that eye. Right. So it's like a weird bluish silvery eye. Yeah, and it's like cataract one of his Dracula fantasy. contact lenses. That's crazy. Uh, and that his wig was made by the wig master that worked on Bram Stoker's Dracula. He had it, like, special custom made for Drexel. Fuck. I mean, like, only he could do a role like this and pull it off in this way. 
And that his 70 year old mother was on set with him every day he was shooting. (laughs) And he would go to her in between takes and ask her what she thought. Like, is it good? You think that's good? Am I doing it? Can you imagine? Doing it, mommy? Mummy? Oh my God. I mean, speaking, we may as well just like, just do a quick rundown of the cast because it's fucking insane. Um, So Patricia Arquette obviously plays Alabama. Christian Slater is Clarence. You have Dennis Hopper. I'm, I mean, can we talk? Like, Yeah, Dennis can, Hopper is just so good. He's so, I mean, his role, he literally is in the movie for probably 10 minutes, and it is so easily, hands down, one of my favorite, at least top three um, movies he's ever been in. Like, I miss him so much. Um, Val Kilmer as, uh-huh. like, <laughs> as, like, kind of, kind of Elvis. Like, <laughs> uh Gary Oldman, of course. And then you have these appearances from Brad Pitt, Samuel L. Jackson, Christopher Walken, James Gandolfini, Michael Rapaport. Like, it just goes on and on. And people just pop up like whack-a-mole. And you're like, oh, my God. Like, another... Oh, my God, it's that guy. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Another celebrity in this movie for four minutes and giving this iconic performance for, like, three minutes. The scene between Christopher Walken and um, um, Dennis Hopper. Oh my God. Uh, Dennis Hopper plays Clarence, who's Christian Slater's dad, like estranged dad. And because there's this interaction with Drexel, the pimp slash drug dealer, now there's like money and drugs are involved. Yeah. So the mob is involved and that is where Christopher Walken comes in. And there is this epic scene where Dennis Hopper just very quietly but brutally like shits all over Christopher Walken. Yeah. But Christopher Walken doesn't really see it coming until the very, very end. And it's because Dennis Hopper knows like I'm a dead man. Like they're not. Yeah. There's money and drugs involved in this. And like, this isn't a gentlemanly conversation. Like these guys came here to get information and he knows like his time is, is, is up. Yeah. So he just goes out in this beautiful, like, blaze of glory. <laughs> I kept thinking it's, this is like the third time this has come up this week. It's very crazy. The Dylan McKay quote of, like, may the bridges I burn light the way. Yes. Type of ending of, like, well, if I'm going to go out, like, I'm going to, like, yeah. just rub these guys' noses in it. And the scene, there are some, well, there are some really kind of harsh racial slurs and racial themes in the scene and that's part of why it's it it's like it's not like oh my god it was this great burn it's not a burn necessarily but these guys he's hitting them in their pride like in their pride of being sicilians um yeah like he takes them down yeah he's kind of like taking them down in a way um hitting them like where they're at their proudest yeah um and it doesn't end well for him, but you know, he knew that that's what, how it was going to go, and he just decided, I'm going to let them just have it before I go. Like if they're going to kill me, I'm going to give them a reason to to kill me. And it's like it's two actors just giving this like, like two like well seasoned actors, like kind of like at the their prime, right? Because they're mm-hmm. like they're older, they're well established, and they're they're old enough, but also still young enough to be you know, like, at the top of their game, and they're just giving, like, this incredible, understated, 
performance. It's not like over the top. You know what I mean? They're just like reacting to each other and like bouncing off of each other. And it's like, it's literally like the greatest thing about that scene is just watching these two actors just act impeccably to each other. It is just like, it's mind blowing. The acting in this movie is fucking mind blowing in every single moment. And nobody isn't great. Even Brad. Show is good in this. Yes, yes. Everybody is <laughs> He's actually amazing. He's so funny. Um. Also, so you, you mentioned earlier that this movie does obviously it exist in, you know, Quentin's sort of universe. Mm-hmm. Um. In Reservoir Dogs, uh, Mr. White does mention a prostitute named Alabama. Right. And uh, it's interesting because <laughs> this movie is like, like I've read, well, actually, I think I have a quote written down from The Independent about this, but they talk about how like the movie almost holds up more because Quentin didn't direct the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? It's like one of Quentin's most timeless movies because he didn't direct it, right. which is like kind of a read, but also like kind of true. <laughs> <laughs> like his imprint is there you can feel his thumbprint in this movie but it's also like it's timeless in a way that I love Quentin like Quentin's like one of my favorite directors but this movie is timeless in a way that feels different than his other movies yeah like it just feels like you could watch this in any decade century whatever and it's like oh yeah for sure um so I think like I had that same note that uh Mr. White mentions Alabama but then there's like one that I don't know if, if it ever got um, like verified, but Lance, uh, Clarence's boss, the one who hired Alabama for him for his birthday is Lance. And Lance is also the name of a character. It's Eric Stoltz's character in Pulp Fiction. Mm, okay, so I'm wondering yeah. if it's the same Lance, like even though it's different city, but like if that Lance ended up, you know, moving to LA, becoming a drug dealer and then you know, helping Uma yeah. Thurman recover from an OD. And then Tarantino did say that um, it's Lee Donowitz. Um, it's the producer of the movie who's buying the Coke uh, and who isn't seen really until like the end of the movie. Oh, yeah. His dad is Sergeant Donnie Donowitz from uh, Inglorious Bastards. It's the yes. Bandu who is played by Eli Roth. So Tarantino said yes that that is that was on purpose like in his universe Lee Donowitz was Sergeant Donnie Donowitz's son like that those two movies being connected alone is already like almost too much for my brain yeah. to handle like I almost just fembotted a little bit <laughs> like zing 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 <laughs> um also just a stupid little like IMDb side note the the glasses that Uma Thurman wears when she wakes up from her coma and Kill Bill are like are uh are Clarence really glasses they're like his Elvis glasses oh my god yeah those like um cheesy like gold plastic <laughs> Elvis Las Vegas Elvis glasses yeah you know when she's like all sweaty and like she like her fingers like push them on her face because she's like yeah. using, learning how to use her limbs again <laughs> um <laughs> I'm going to read that quote, actually, from The Independent. It says, okay. uh, on its quarter century, the case can be made that true, true romance stands uniquely apart from the pantheon of Quentin Tarantino movies. It's the only uh, entry in the Tarantino canon that, conf- uh, that the former video store clerk didn't direct. 
ignoring Oliver Stone's butchering of a screenplay for Natural Born Killers a year later. Yet it is for, it is for this very reason that it is also arguably aged the best, uh, Rachel slurs and onset violence aside. Um, and like this movie's, or so we should talk about this movie's origin story a little bit because it is, it is pretty iconic. Um, so young Quentin, who was like working at this like video store, which is kind of modeled after the comic book store that Clarence works at in the uh-huh. film, um, was presented with a screenplay by Roger Avery called The Open Road. And originally the concept was about this like high strung businessman going on a uh, a road trip and like meeting like a hitchhiker. And like in that version, I can see Drew Barrymore doing this. You know, like that is the manic pixie dream girl that Drew yes. Barrymore is like hitchhiker vibes. Uh, and uh he basically he presented it to quentin and said like can you like look over this and maybe like make some edits to it and it collected dust and a year later quentin handed it back and completely rewrote it and he had true romance and um somehow quentin found himself on the set of uh the last boy scout and which was directed by tony scott Mm -hmm. so quentin pinched pitched him reservoir dogs and True Romance, he ended up buying Reservoir Dogs. It becomes this massive hit. He uses the money from that to make True Romance. Amazing. Insane. I mean, like, the fact that these two movies exist, and, like, this early Quentin stuff is my favorite. Do you have, like, a, a favorite Quentin, like, era? Like, what is your, like, Quentin, fa- like, era? My tried and true Quentin is, is Pulp Fiction. Classic. And probably because that was when I entered that Quentin Tarantino world. Like that's what I, that's what introduced me to it. And then um, it was the, God, he didn't direct it. He just, I think he had a part in it and he had maybe like a role in the production. Um, Four Rooms. Do you remember Four Rooms? Yeah. It was four different directors directed four different scenes. Like, so they, each one did a short and then they, put them all together to make a movie. And then there's a couple of characters that kind of tie, oh, Tim Roth's bellboy is the one that goes in all of them. He's, he's a thread in every single one. That's what connects all four of them. But Tarantino is in one of the scenes, uh, in one of the, the director scenes. So, so I don't think he had anything to do with directing it, but it was in that same Pulp Fiction-y type of era when it was this same feel, that, like that same kind of feel. Yeah. It should also be stated, too, while we're talking about casting, that uh, the only thing at this point that Patricia Arquette was known for, ironically, I mentioned it, like, I don't know why somehow it came up in the Beyonce episode, like, somehow, because that's the kind of podcast this is. But she was known for doing Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors, which is my all-time right. favorite horror movie. Right. Um, and if you've ever seen that movie, it's, like, obviously, like, this low-budget, like, 80s horror movie. But, like, even in that, like, Patricia's acting, like, is so, it's so much better than it should be. It's, like, almost scary how naturally good this, like, teenage girl is in this 80s horror movie. You're like, oh. Like, you're not used to seeing girls actually shed tears in 80s horror movies. Like, she's, like, actually crying. Like, oh. Um, but she also was quoted in The Independent saying, <laughs> she said, my agent told me about the script for a Tony Scott movie. Uh, she would tell uh, Maxim, or this is her Maxim magazine a million years ago. 
Uh, she told Maxim Magazine, there was a lot I liked about it, but I didn't like when Alabama was sort of racist. By now we've all gotten used to Quentin's tone, but at the time I was somewhat shocked by it. I was asking myself, what is this? Whoa, I don't know if the, the line about being turned off by Persians was something, uh, was in the script, or it, it was in earlier versions, but it ended up not being in like the final script, but they told her to say that she was turned off by Persian men. And um, she said, actually, every time we did that scene, I would say a different ethnic group because I wanted to equally offend everybody. <laughs> I think that's so funny. <laughs> yeah. um, even in the 90s, Patricia was giving iconic, like, Oscar speech-worthy, uh, <laughs> like, holding her chest up to the, to the, like, the sky. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, this movie, the thing about True Romance for me is that it fits into like all of these different categories for me like it is like i watch this movie when i want to watch like a romantic comedy but i also watch it when i want to watch like a violent bloodbath like if it, i want to watch like an action it's film the best of both worlds you get everything you need in this one movie what are some of your favorite scenes from this movie like let's just like do it okay it's the beginning is still one of my favorites when she meets him at the movie theater so um, Clarence is kind of a loner and his boss feels sorry for him that he's going to be alone on his birthday. So he hires this call girl who turns out to be Alabama to accidentally run into him at a movie theater. So she comes in in her Alabama glory, like red lipstick, blonde <laughs> hair, leopard print coat. And she's got a big thing of popcorn and a soda. She sits behind him and accidentally spills pop well she doesn't but she accidentally on purpose spills popcorn all over him jumps the seat to sit next to him to kind of like wipe him off and say sorry and ends up just sitting next to him and it's that's one of my favorite scenes it's like it's every girl knew she did it on purpose and every guy just catches up to it at the end of it like yeah. oh oh she planned that because <laughs> yeah. it's yes. just constantly being underestimated that's our that's our game yep. um and it's that whole opening scene like so it's them kind of going out for pie afterwards and kind of she's romancing him a little bit and sort of you know she um she does kind of entice him and they end up going to his place they hook up and then at the end of that hookup scene she goes outside and she's crying he comes outside and he finds her and he you know he's like oh my god what's wrong what's wrong like did i do something and she's crying because she realized like she fell in love with him yeah. And she's new at the call girl thing. Like it's only her third day, third or fourth day as being a call girl. So um, she's afraid that he's going to be mad at her and that he's going to think she's like, I think she called it like damaged goods. Like, you know, she's like, yeah. she, she's when she's, she just like rips her chest open and spills her heart out to him. Yeah. And just hits him with a like, you know, I'm a call girl. I don't want you to think I'm like white trash. I don't want you to think I'm damaged goods. I've like, you're only like my third customer. And, um, you know, this started out as fake, but I'm in love with you. That whole, whole first part of the movie is still like my favorite because it's like, yes, that this is what I want from a movie. This is the romance that I want where it starts out. Like it was a business deal and you think it's going to be very pretty woman, very like, um, and it could have very easily gone to a rom-com place. Oh yeah. But the way she delivers it, the way she plays the, the, the way she plays the scenes and also, you know, 
that they do they do introduce like the kind of grittiness of the pimp and the violence it it's like what you said it takes that rom-com and flips it and goes in a way where you weren't expecting which makes it just seem more authentic and you can see her falling in love with him like you you buy it it's like oh this isn't like hollywood hooker meets um a businessman and oh she's so quirky they fall in love if this is like oh this is like a girl who was desperate didn't know what to do ended up in this you know line of work and just inexplicably feels this incredible connection with this guy because she can protect him he can protect her it's not just about oh i found this person that's going to take care of me yeah it was this is like my teammate this mm-hmm. was like this is like my my soul my soulmate somebody that they're going to be the perfect team together because they don't work without each other yeah that's yeah. part of yeah that seems amazing too because it, they needed to really 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 quickly i mean in hindsight it's only like what five minutes maybe like 10 minutes long at the most like that yeah. opening, like establishing scene and they needed to like very quickly it's almost a montage you know what i mean yeah, yeah. It's like, a, like a slowed down montage a little bit and they needed to really quickly establish that these two are soulmates in a way that feels grounded enough that it would work for the whole like two and a half hour movie mm-hmm. so like that scene is so that opening moment is so important because it really does like just in those few minutes, like you really do feel like, Oh yeah, they are soulmates. They need each other. There's nobody else in the world that they could ever possibly be with. They can't be apart because they need each other. Like they Mm -hmm. clearly need each other to survive. Like they are, they're soul bonded. And that happens in like seven minutes. Yeah. Like that's crazy. It's first act, like it, right away. Like they're not even gonna, they're not wasting anybody's time. It's just, it's established right up front, right in the beginning. And that's kind of what she did to him. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's what the way she kind of just makes it real to him right away. Like I'm not gonna be coy. I'm not gonna like pretend like nothing's wrong and like, you know, wait three, four weeks before I, I declare my love for you. It's just, it's right out in the open. It's right away. And that's how the movie starts. Of like, this is what this movie is going to be. It's right here. Like, we're not going to bullshit and waste yeah. film. Like, it's right here. This is it. Yeah. I, even to the point that when he does go get her stuff, he's like, well, I'm going to go get your stuff now so you can move in. It's like, okay, like, it, it, that feels right. It's like, yeah, let's move this along. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, let's yeah. go get her stuff and get her moved <laughs> in in the first 30 minutes. Of, yeah, it's time. Yep. You know what I mean? Like, and she knows it. She's like, yeah, okay. Like, I'm scared, but yeah, I should probably move in. Like, this feels right. This is, yeah, yeah, this is the move. This is what we should be doing. And because everything is so unexpected, like, the romance is so, the romance is as unexpected as the violence. Everything happens just sort of unexpectedly. You never know. You can't ever really predict when a scene is going to become just absurdly violent like if you've never watched this movie you have no no way of gauging when a scene is about to become a literal bloodbath or and when when someone you've been following this whole time is just gonna get murdered just gonna die it's just they're gone yeah they're just going to slow motion be shot and die like and you're like it's like terrifying because there's a lot of like there's a lot of times when you think like that they're going to die. There are moments in this movie where you're like, clearly 
Alabama is gonna about to die. Clear, there's no way that she's gonna survive this. So like, obviously, Clarence is about to get shot, and I'm gonna hysterically cry. And even now, when I watch this movie, I've seen it forty thousand times, and every time, like when either of them comes close to being killed, I'm like, I'm hysterical the whole time I watch this movie. I'm my heart <laughs> is racing. I'm like approaching a heart attack. I'm hysterically crying. I'm in love. I'm scared. Like it is an emotional roller coaster. The the ending, I, I well, I had read originally Tarantino kills off Clarence. Yeah. So, um, I mean, come on, the movie's like 25 years old. We're beyond spoiler alerts. Right, yeah, um, yeah. Oh, yeah, end, spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert. The movie culminates in this insane shootout where, yeah. like, the room becomes Swiss cheese. Like, it is... Yeah. In, it, it's, it looks like impossible that anybody would survive this. So, and in the original, Quentin Tarantino wrote that uh, Clarence would die in the shootout. But then Tony Scott changed the ending and said, no, he really felt like love for the characters, the, the, for Alabama and Clarence, yeah. and decided that they should have a happy ending, that they deserved a happy ending. And I think when Tarantino saw the finished film was like, yeah, I was wrong. But, that's yeah. how it should have played out. Like it's a romance movie and it doesn't need to be a tragedy. Like it, it could be a romance and still, still be good. Like it could, they could have a happy ending and still be good. Yeah. I think I had read somewhere that he said like that it, the happy ending works for like the tone of this movie. And it's mm-hmm. like, it's like, yeah, this is a movie about two people finding each other and literally like just macheting everything in their way that, like comes between their love like they'll both kill anyone if they have to and they'll do anything and travel as far as they need to go to just be together so yeah to have that end with one of them dying would just be so like horrible you know what I mean it's terrible yeah too too much they they should they they went through enough and they should have not come out on the other end yeah it's so much more impactful that they their love made them survive a gunfight between like 40 people like that's the point you know yeah um and also that scene like to talk about that shootout scene for a second like that is the scene that I feel like every director dreams of of like working a movie in such a beautiful way that it ends with all of the characters who have been fighting and maybe don't know that they're fighting or whatever all in one room shooting each other in a way that just makes complete sense it's like of course they all ended up in the same room like this was inevitable it felt inevitable but yeah, like and that's because so hard every i mean they just like etch a sketch end of the world in this cast yeah. everybody died in that last scene except for baby floyd who was able to make it out oh thank god thank god when i saw him free and clear i like I, every time i see him escape i'm like oh just relax just relax Untend. he's fine he's fine um clarence ends up surviving he does get shot but he survives yeah um and then alabama is safe too but everybody else everybody else Man. even like the people that you think are inconsequential like um i forget his character's name but it's bronson pinchot and his boss, who don't re- didn't really have anything to do with this, yeah, until the very end. There, there happened to be the buyer and the person who arranged the buy for the drugs that Alabama and Clarence end up accidentally getting their hands on. It's in 
Oh, that's, that's right. Um, when Clarence goes to Drexel's to get Alabama stuff, he asks, um, or he, you know, he has his confrontation with, uh, with Drexel. There's a big shootout. You know, they, they get killed. And he yells for the suitcase, meaning Alabama's stuff. But the, the prostitute that's there, the girl, I don't know if she's, you know, she's just one of Drexel's girls or if she actually is one of the sex workers there. She throws him a suitcase and he goes home with it thinking he's got Alabama stuff. Instead, he's accidentally gotten a hold of, of uh, is it all drugs or is it drugs and money? I can never remember. I think it's drugs and money. It's drugs and money. So it's, it's what the dealer had just brought to Drexel. Yeah. So it's Drexel's stash that he accidentally ends up with. And that's what starts off this whole thing of everybody coming after them because they've got, it's some ri- now ridiculously small amount of money, but in, I guess in 1993 seemed like a lot of money. It's something silly, like $500,000 worth of product or something like that, yeah. which is like, what are you buying for $500,000? I know. I know. Even in Mexico, what do you buy? Like, you can't live off of that. That's like a really nice payday, but that's like not retirement forever money. But I guess in 1993 it was. Yeah. Um, and they're a couple hillbillies. Right. <laughs> they're, they, you know, they're, they, they can do it. Yeah. Um, they'll, they'll cut corners. Um, so it, at the very end, Bronson Pinchot is an assistant to a big time producer and they arrange that he's going to buy the cocaine from them, like all in one. Because Clarence doesn't want to sell it little by little because he knows that that's going to be too difficult and take too long and too risky, but that just selling it to one person, one transaction, bam, it's done. That's what he wants to do. That's what this producer guy is going to do. Yeah. And that's, there's like a sting operation, all this stuff, whatever. And that's what the big shootout culminates in. But even the assistant who is Floyd's friend, it's Bronson Pinchot just gets obliterated by gunfire. Like nobody survives this shootout. None of the cops, none of the bad guys. And it, there's not even a clear distinction between who is a good guy, who isn't, and who's a good guy, who's a bad guy. Because everybody gets mowed down at the end of the movie. Yeah. And that's when you're thinking like, oh my God, it's over. Like all for nothing because Clarence is gone. Yep. But of course, instead of the like, you know, knight in shining armor coming in, it's the lady in shining armor. It's Patricia Arquette. Who it's comes her. In. It's Alabama who comes in and saves Clarence. Like if he had stayed there, he may have maybe would have lived, but he would have gotten arrested. Yeah. So she snatches him up, you know, <laughs> makes him cover his bleeding eyeball oh. and just gets him the fuck out of there and makes their escape. Like if it hadn't been for her, he would have gotten caught. There wouldn't have been any money and she would have been back to zero with nothing. Absolutely nothing. Not even like the love of her life. And there's never any like, there's never any, for as much of a little hillbilly as Christian Slater is in this movie, there's never a moment of him being like, you know, you're weak or whatever. Like, he does want to protect her, and he does establish that he's going to go get her stuff and kill Drexel to let her know, like, I just want you to know that I'm, like, here for you. Like, I want you to know that I'm, like, this is what I, the kind of stuff I'll do for you. So, like, he establishes that, but there's never any moment of him not seeing her as, like, equally as strong. 
Yeah, there's never like a little lady moment, like a patting her on the head. Yeah, like they just are strong for each other, as strong as they need to be. And like the whole point is like with their combined effort, like they can basically survive whatever. Like they are literally staggering bloody through a hotel Mm -hmm. full of people shooting, like a literal squad of police in riot gear shooting. And together, like they're cool. You know what I mean? Like as long as they have each other, it's fine. Right. Um, and I love that there was never a point where they had to like betray each other. That yeah, that wasn't even in that. That would never have been realistic. That like one would have turned on the other one. Yeah, it was never ever never even hinted at. It was the two of them, solid team throughout the entire movie. Like once they bonded and connected, like that was it. There was no tearing that apart. I actually read that this was originally written. Um, in the style of Pulp Fiction, like, oh, so, yeah, like told from the end and kind of skipping between people's storylines and you know, having it all come together at this moment at the end. And uh, Tony Scott actually started directing it as you know, this out of um, told out, like, of, out time, of sequence, yeah, yeah, out of sequence story. And uh, he like. <laughs> He ended up getting so confused by it that he was like, I can't do this. So then oh he Oh my just, god, math is hard. Uh, yeah, he's like, it's too much. Like, so they reshot what they did and just did it like in a, you know, as a normally sequenced film. But that shootout scene does kind of put you in the mind of like a Pulp Fiction moment. Like it, I do see a world where this was all told from different perspectives. Yeah. And then they all end up in that room and you have like this emotional attachment to all of them in like different ways. Um but I like that it wasn't told that way because it, it gives more emphasis to Alabama and Clarence, you know? I think so too, yeah. I mean, I see how it could have worked with the kind yeah. of shot out of time or like told out of time, but I, I do kind of like the way it was told. Yeah. It worked, totally. And I mean, we have to talk about the end of the film. Like when they're on, like the iconic moment where the music comes back on. Can we, did we even mention the music? The music, I mean... <sighs> It, it's all, it's one of the things that every, even like anything that is touched by Tarantino. Yeah. You just know, like, yeah. what's the music going to be like? Like fucking perfect and spectacular. That's what it's yeah. going to be like. Yes. Fuck. Like this is, this song is easily hands down for sure. One of the most iconic soundtrack songs. I mean, anybody it's like a bonding thing when you know somebody who knows this song or like cares about it. Um, I mean, the music comes on and they're like riding in the pink Cadillac into the sunset and like watching her, like watch Clarence and their son with his little fucking mullet and his, his bowler like button up play on the beach. And Clarence has his eye patch on, which is actually very fitting. And it's just, like, the most beautiful, perfect ending that these two ended up with their $500,000 on a beach somewhere, and they're all wearing Hawaiian shirts, and they're so happy. Oh. But, God, and normally I don't love a cheesy ending, but this was, it's, like, the rest of the movie, it was fairy tale, but in the style of Alabama and Clarence. Yeah. Like it's a it's a special flavor of them where yes it is a happy ending for them, it's 
they are kind of fugitives from law, but you know, whatever. But they're in Mexico. They have their baby, their baby named Elvis. Um, they've got their matching, you know, coordinating Hawaiian wear a family shirt. <laughs> um, and that's really like the only kind of really cheesy thing is like the shirts and like the baby named Elvis. But everything else, it's like, it's like I was the Grinch. Like your heart grows three sizes at the end of the movie because yeah. you realize like, oh yeah, I was, uh, you're always rooting for them. Even though they're not like clearly good characters, like right. it's not like they're untouched, like that they've not done violent things or bad things, but they did what they had to do to survive. And that's kind of what, that's realistic. That's what you would do. Like if, if you were at the end of your rope, like I think Alabama, they don't go into it as much. But if you are a woman on your own at the point where you have turned to sex work, yeah, there's not a lot of, they probably didn't have a lot of wiggle room for where your life was going to go. Like she's in a desperate situation and she finds the perfect person for her. Like in the middle of all of it, she finds him and he maybe wasn't in like such a dire situation, but he was pretty bottom of the barrel. Like he was just this guy that worked at a comic bookstore that like there wasn't a lot of growth for him if he was just going to continue to do that. Well, he they allude was, to him being depressed, you know, they allude yeah, to him that, that he's alone a lot and that his birthdays are always alone. He doesn't have a girlfriend. He doesn't have a lot of friends. So that like maybe emotionally he was in a very empty, like, you know, kind of the uh, Vicki Gundelson, his love tank was empty. Yes. Um, and she was in a point when in her life, where she also was looking for like, I've got to figure it out really fast because if I don't figure something else out, this is it. Like, this is what I have to do forever. Um, and they find each other at the perfect time. It's the two perfect people meeting at the perfect time. And <clears throat> they've got to do what they have to do to get their happy ending. I mean, honestly, even when he goes to visit his dad, like the dad only agrees to help him because he can see that his son is like awake for the first time. I mean, yeah. his response to his dad being like, oh, I'm your dad. You want help from me? Like there is a moment between them where you could tell like they hadn't had an open conversation. Like, like it was so impactful for Dennis Hopper that he was like, I love you. Like he probably said, I love you for the first time. And Mm-hmm. 20 years and like none of that was spoken but it was established by the way that he like hugged him and you know Clarence like closed his eyes and didn't want to they he was like being mean about it or whatever but like Clarence was like so um like visibly just it, it, so emotional by the fact that he was hugging his dad like right. it was so clear that Alabama had like come into his life and like woken him up like that mm-hmm. was like established you know she had like turned the lights on in his head yeah Oh, that's a really good way of putting it, yeah. And, like, even with the ending, I mean, we talked about the whole movie having these, like, unexpected, just every single moment, you can't expect what's going to happen and what turn it's going to take, and if somebody's going to die, like, you have no idea what's going to happen this whole movie. And it's just another, to me, it's always been another just, like, last-minute sort of wink, pull the rug from under you moment where you've now watched this out outrageously 
violent scene. And you've established now we're at the end of the movie. This is a love story, but told in like some wacky fucking way. This is not your traditional love story. Nothing is as you would expect it to be. But just to shock you one more time before the movie ends, you get a romantic classic rom-com ending like yeah you get the movie the music swelling yeah beautiful sunset on a beach you know young happy family dancing around on the sand yeah Yeah. it's just to shock you right after you've seen the the most violent move like part of the whole movie like literally a 15 or 20 minute like shootout where everybody is violently being shot like it goes right into this like romantic you know, sunset ending. And it's just like, in that moment is just so like, what? Like, what is so good? Oh, God damn it, this movie. Um. (laughs) And it's it's not even like it was an original, like couple concept because it is very like, it's Bonnie and Clyde. Like, I guess that's probably the most classic example of, of their pairing. It's Bonnie and Clyde. Except it's like a Bonnie and Clyde that you don't feel bad rooting for, even if if you rooted for Bonnie and Clyde, ultimately you have to admit like, well, they're kind of shit right. people. But these are like, well, it's like Bonnie and Clyde with a heart of gold. Yeah. Kind of. And it's in a way that it's, um, it's romantic, but also there's like a little bit of sadness between, there's sadness kind of in their origin stories that feels very real. And it was something that you had mentioned about even about the way Patricia Arquette, even her acting style, where that she's choosing to be happy because she's coming from such darkness that I think resonates with a lot of people. That's like, oh God, like when you've been like the, the very, in a very, very dark place and you can meet somebody who I, oh my God, it's just the way you put it too. I'm going to have to give credit again to you. It's so <laughs> genius. Um, somebody who turns the lights on. Yeah. And somebody who like gave Clarence this whole new goal that he never thought he was going to get. This like happy family dancing on the beach goal. Yeah. Uh, and even for her, for Alabama, that's probably something she did want and expected to happen but then all of a sudden found herself like I work for Drexel and I'm a call girl yep um how am I ever gonna get my happy ending like I gotta make it happen it's so fuck sorry <laughs> I just got like spellbound by what you were saying <laughs> I was like listening to a seminar and like taking notes um <laughs> oh but then I, I also also oh my god this is terrible I, I also made me think of Jackson Brittany from Vanderpump Rules <laughs> where she wants this happy ending and like oh my god by gosh darn, darn it she's gonna get it <laughs> it doesn't matter how much beer cheese she needs to stir all the beer going. cheese in the world will not hold her back no i mean you're right like and it's funny because she enters his life like this like tasmanian devil right like literally like spy like okay popcorn poured on his head. She's like climbing over the seats to get to him, blowing smoke in his face, her tits are out. She's red-lipped and fucking bleach blonde and she's wearing cow print and she's just like literally a tornado that comes into his life. And then he becomes a part of her tornado and they are just this like sweeping fucking, like everywhere they go together, it is just manic energy around them because they are so their relationship is a literal whirlwind, like physically too. 
And like everybody that they come in contact with, they're just like these bats out of hell. Like even when they pull up to her, his dad's trailer and he's like, you pull in here with your fucking pink Cadillac. She's like wiggling out of the car and popping gum and you're like Elvis now. And you know what I mean? Yeah, She's kissing me in my lips. And it's just like, they are like, it's a literal whirlwind relationship. They're literally like Tasmanian devils. And it's like- Everybody, the- everybody falls under the spell because um, Clarence's dad kind of seeing them together and seeing her and what she's doing to him and for him like warms up to it uh floyd there's a scene where um it's michael rapaport is watching like kind of looking at the two of them and he's shocked when clarence tells him he's married yeah but then like sees them interact and kind of sees her and is so just like beguiled by her that it's just like he just starts like he looks at them and just starts smiling yeah oh god yes floyd same (laughs) I know even fucking uh even James Gandolfini when he's like in the hotel waiting for her like Mm -hmm. he isn't you can tell and he plays this so perfectly fuck I miss him so much but like you can tell that he was not expecting to, to to have this woman walk in and it wasn't really so much even about like how she looked she just walked in and was just so like She's so immediately charming and like her personality is one that you just want to like watch her do stuff. You know what I mean? Like he gives this moment of like looking her up and down like, whoa, like this is Alabama Whirly. Like, okay, like, whoa. You know what I mean? Like I I feel bad that I have to kill you because you are literally like a fairy or something. You know what I mean? You're like not a real human. I mean, she's a manic pixie dream girl the definition <laughs> because he asks her for the coke like where's the coke and she's like coke we don't have any coke but there's a pepsi machine in the hall <laughs> <laughs> and oh. he knows she's bullshitting he knows but he can't yeah. help like you can't help it you'll you'll smile you'll, yeah you'll- <laughs> and she knows it like she knows that she's almost like her charm is all like, she uses it as a weapon as well as yeah. a, a thing to survive and it's also genuine but like she knows that it's like her it's her tool like her charm is like her thing that it's her arsenal and like she's like almost laughing at the fact that he is seeing through her and she's still charming you know what I mean like I know yeah yeah (laughs) it's probably what she what like her um her best survival tool yeah Yes, and she's very, like, aware of it, and it's interesting to just watch her use it in all these different ways, and everybody around her is aware of it, that it's her survival tool, and it's, it's like, fun for them to watch her use it. Like, it's, like, fun for Clarence to watch her exist in his world and meet her friends and meet her dad and just, like, watch them react to her. Like, he literally stares at them react to her with, like, yeah. the same way we do. Oh, God. I still, I want to be a third in their relationship. I'm ready. I mean, where are they? You want to be, like, in the baby seat next to a little baby Elvis. In the yes. Back. Yes. <laughs> um, well, do you have any, like, I don't know, anything else that you want to add about this before we, like, end it? I think it's just, it's held up really well for me um, in terms of the story, like, in terms of their story. I think it's held up really well. It's... Mm-hmm probably um i think you've seen like ripples of it in other 
relationships. I'm trying to think now of like some examples and of course my mind went blank, but it's like dark romance, mm-hmm. like a kind of a little bit of a darker twist on romance that now is like not that big of a deal, but like in 1993, like it was genius. It was like, oh my God, there was nothing like this before. Like yeah. they didn't speak this way. They didn't act this way. Um, they, even the look of it, like Alabama still could walk into a scene in a movie today and still be like a bombshell that charmed the shit out of everybody in the room. So to me, she's held up, they've held up, their their love still holds up. Um, and it's still like, it's one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite love stories. It's, it's just so strange because of all the violence and weird stuff that's going on. <laughs> But it's still, it's one of my favorite like romance stories. And she's one of my favorite uh, women in female characters in, in a movie. I mean, tr- literally everything you said times 20, like it holds up in a way that is just like, every time I watch it, I'm shocked by how well it holds up. And I do feel like a lot of movies have sort of tried to copy this, um, mm-hmm. this like romance this unexpected like crazy whirlwind romance that is so but you can't like you can't recreate this nobody could tony scott and quentin tarantino couldn't recreate this yeah you know it was lightning in a bottle and that's what this movie feels like it feels like everything falling into place perfectly there's nothing there's no person in this movie that feels out of place there's no scene that feels wasted there's no Mm -hmm. boring moment there's no wasted dialogue like every single moment of this movie from beginning to end is like this perfect like symphony and it's just like ugh. if and by the way if you've listened to this whole thing and not seen the movie that's offensive i actually take offense (laughs) to that i think that that's rude and it feels attacking and manipulative so you can't unhear what you've heard or whatever but um if you have seen it then you get it because everybody who's seen this movie gets it i've never met anybody who watched it and hated it um, you know, and it's the reason that people love it today. And I think it's streaming for free. I know it's, I think it's, um, it's the Cracked app. It's the Sony. So it's all a bunch of like, okay. Sony movies that are available for free. I think it's streaming on Cracked for free now. Um, but I lucked out and my boyfriend happened to have purchased it like right before. So I, I mean, I think from the time he's purchased it to the time we talked about it, I'd probably already watched it like three times at his house. <laughs> yeah, if you haven't watched this in a while, just like go back and like, seriously, just like one random night, turn the lights off and just watch True Romance and get lost in it and uh, and hysterically cry. I also love that this is a movie that really pushes uh, straight men to cry. It really <laughs> tickles their like little cry bone. And I love it. Like, every guy that I've ever made watch this movie, I sit, I watch them. I don't even watch the movie. I watch them because I want to see their reactions. And because this is a love story that, like, a, a straight guy can, like, get behind. And oh, God, yeah. Like, with the with Dennis Hopper, like, the whole thing with the dad. And then, mm-hmm. like, yeah, dad and love and survival. And, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Come on. Yeah. So, girls, trick your, trick your boyfriend into watching this. It'll trick change your relationship. <laughs> well thank you so much for doing this with me this was obviously i mean of course it was so fun i could talk to you for five hours a day oh, another uh, eight part series on this <laughs> um well tell people where they can find your podcast and you and all the things 
Uh, well, my podcast, I do it with uh, my friend Katie. We are The Bottom Bible, and it's The Bottom Bible everywhere and anywhere, social media and everything, and it's on iTunes and Spotify, all this stuff. We talk about sometimes pop culture, but usually more like sex relationship type of stuff. We try to make it um, funny, like some some real facts, so, some some science, but also we always end up by the end of it a little tipsy playing a weird game. <laughs> about fucking months. It's amazing. It's funny. It will make you want to drink with a girlfriend. Like sometimes I'll like I swear to God, sometimes when I'm listening to your podcast, like I'll be like really just like I feel like I get idle feet and my feet take me to the fridge and like I'm all of a sudden cracking open a beer and I don't even realize it. <laughs> all of a sudden I'm drunk and I'm like, what happened? It makes you want to hang out with you guys and drink, which is like my favorite thing to do. So um, it's good. You guys have to listen to it. Um, and yeah, I love you. Please like, let's figure something else out to talk about. Cause you have. Oh my God. Yes. So many like power, like fictional power couples. Yeah. This is like really clearly our wheelhouse, like um, sweeping love stories. <laughs> Sweeping, uh, sweeping love stories, but with guns and occasionally, you know, yeah. someone gets shot in the eye. But <laughs> yeah. love isn't free. There needs to be a sacrifice. <laughs> well, thank you for doing this, you guys. Thank you for listening. This was episode, what did I say earlier? Like 349 um, yes, of the Smush Room. And uh, yeah, bye. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening to the Smush Room, an emotionally broken psycho's Patreon exclusive. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. Also, be sure to head over to patreon.com slash ebpsychos for more information on this show and other Patreon-exclusive content. You can follow me on Twitter at Troy McEady. That's T-R-O-Y-M-C-E-A-D-Y. Thank you to executive producer Molly McAleer and coordinating producer Nicole Matthew. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.